Welcome to this episode of Portraits of Music. I'm Ross Sievertson. And I'm Clay Couturio, music director and conductor of the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. We're here today with former film critic Gary Cogill from WFAA News. Um, Gary, I want to thank you very much for being with us here today. And we're joined by, of course, Maestro Couturio and our president and executive director, Lori Garvey. Thank you, folks. Wow. I'm running in high company. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know yeah. it, Gary. Oh, I do know it. And this is just fun. <laughs> this is so much fun for me because I get to talk about stuff that I love. Plus the whole idea of, of music incorporated in film to me is just always, for my entire life since I was a little boy, just put me over the moon. Just, yeah. You know, there's scores that go back to my childhood that, oh my God, just listening to the score from To Kill a Mockingbird. That's one of the first LP records I ever purchased. Well, for a lot of musicians, film is their introduction into music. And I, I can, I know anytime John Williams comes into town and he's uh, performing with orchestra members, they'll actually come to him and tell him that you were an inspiration to me. And I learned to play my instrument and, and want to play music because of listening to your music. Sure. Uh, yeah. Oh, isn't that amazing? Yes. I mean, we're so, we're so touched, I think, by cinema. And we're so touched by stories, and that's the true with music, because music in its own way is a story. It's just done differently. It's not done cinematically. It's done with instruments and composers and conductors and all, all you people that make that music just sound great makes our lives go crazy. And it is also turns, turns the light on. We, when we hear the music that you guys are going to play uh, when we do this program, uh, it makes our, our minds light up. We know that scene. We know what that looks like. Well, it's definitely, we yeah. it's definitely a, a crazy profession, I can tell you that, you know, because it's, it's unlike any other profession, being a musician. But I was going to ask you, Gary, sure. likewise, I would imagine the route you go to become a film critic must be a little crazy. How, do you, how did you decide or when did you know you wanted to be a film critic and how did you go about doing that? Uh, it's a really good question, and for me, the journey was interesting because I really wanted to be an actor, and I was terrible. I was not a good actor. I was I studied acting. Mm -hmm. I was in a lot of plays. I did a lot of TV commercials, which is really not acting, and I did some things. But uh, uh, I just and then Siskel and Ebert came along, mm -hmm. and, and the light went off in my head, and I went, I love movies so much that I want to write about movies. I want to do what I want to do what Roger Ebert and Siskel do. Mm -hmm. And then I met them, and I ended up. I started my first job as a film critic was for uh, KTRE Channel Nine in Lufkin, Nacogdoches. Oh, I love it! And they had they had uh, two movie theaters in a little town, and they had a tele they had a news broadcast out there. And I knew the news director who called me up, so they paid me two hundred dollars a month. I had to get there and back. It was four hours one way from Dallas. <laughs> I had a car that would barely make it. I don't think I had a speedometer. I think I had a hole in the floor. I think you'd see how fast the pavement was going, and I knew I was going 60. <laughs> and so I'd get out there. Sonia Van Sickle was the weekend anchor. We became oh my friends gosh. to work at Channel 8. Yeah, right. And Yeah, and so and so they had a news anchor. And I remember the first time I, I, I wrote a review, edited it, put it together, sat on the 5 o'clock news set, and the anchor turns to me and says, there's no reason to be scared. There's only 25,000 people watching, <laughs> which for him was a big deal. And I, and I, was, I thought that was just hilarious. And then, I, and then I worked for Channel 39 in Dallas uh, for a while, and I had a show called The Big Movie Show. Uh, and uh, and I did, it lasted for eight weeks, and they came in and canceled it for eight weeks because the Von Erichs were big in wrestling. Oh, my gosh. There's a movie about them right now. But Channel 39 owned all the rights locally to the Von Erichs and all the wrestling that went on at the Sportatorium. And I would run into all the, all the time. <laughs> and, and the first show that I did, I had, I had um, Horton Foote, who wrote To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh, yeah. I had Terry Gilliam mm -hmm. on from one of the Python guys. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then I, uh, I also had uh, a, a guy from Dallas who wrote Pritzi's Honor. And I had three Oscar-nominated screenwriters on a show, and they came in and canceled it a week later and said, Gary, we don't know who these people are. We do wrestling. Wow. And, and the show was really cool, but you had to know movies to do mm -hmm. it because, in a way, it's kind of a subculture. Then I spent three years trying to get to Channel 8, finally got a chance. Marty Haig hired me, the great Marty Haig. Yeah. 
And uh, I remember walking out of there. I think I went to White Lock Lake and ran around it three times. I don't know. I was just so, so invigorated and yeah. so excited. And then I was there 24 years. So from channel all of them, yeah. channel 39 to channel 8, is that right? Yeah. Is that going well, from UHF from, to VHF or vice versa? <laughs> I can't remember which one that is. Well, and, and from, from Lufkin to Lufkin channel 39 to yes, channel 8, yeah. right? So that's... Yep. <clears throat> Yeah, it was. A, it's actually not a long journey. It's a shorter journey, but I was ready for it. I was ready at the time. And Marty Haig looked at me and said, "I'm hiring. I'm hiring you, Gary, because you don't make people feel stupid if they disagree with you." Mm-hmm. And I said, "Well, it's the dialogue that counts, not whether we agree or disagree. I think the dialogue in movies and that we have about movies is the most important thing to me." And then also, uh, I, you know, Cisco and Ebert were doing their thumbs up thing. Mm-hmm. And I got this all the time. Uh, what are you going to do? Are you going to do a thumbs? Or, or And I said, well, <laughs> there's a guy in Alaska that reviews films, and he does moose antlers. Moose antlers. And if it's an eight-antler film, it's really great. <laughs> and I'll never forget that. And I turned to the new news director after Marty Pig was gone, and I said, I just choose to use words. I just want to use words. I don't need, I don't need any of this. You so and he let, he, they let me do it. So when you do uh, review a film, do you have a process? What what do you? How do you go about reviewing a film? So for a long time, I took notes, and then I realized I write for television. I don't write for print. Everything I do is in two minutes or less. And if you have a, a long title to a movie like The Man Who Went Up a Hill That Came Down a Mountain, uh, <laughs> and then you say that four times and the cast three times, you're, you're a minute out. And so I just, I had to figure out how to be concise and use words and, and not be verbose about it. And it took me a while. And then I, I really think it's true. Once, once I wrote a hundred reviews and did this, I found a rhythm of my own voice mm-hmm. I believe in that. my own self. And I really learned to trust myself. Mm-hmm. I would write them, I would edit them, and I would go in the voice booth and, and voice them and then front them on television and move on to the next one. And I was reviewing about 400 films a year at the time. So it's a lot. That is a lot. And yeah. And you'd see a lot of, like, I'd, I'd see like four movies. Fl- Four movies in one day, just just too much. Yeah, you know that's like being a a, a wine writer, and you have to taste three hundred bottles in one mm-hmm. day. Yeah, you just got to spit all that out. Mm-hmm. And I I just uh, but I did a lot of three movies in one day, but most of the time it was movie in the morning, movie in the evening, and move on. But it was uh, uh, and it was a privilege. Mm-hmm. And I got to know Bobby Wygant really well. Oh, oh, I forgot about Bobby. She was so awesome. She was awesome. Yeah, she, she she was. I don't. Is she still on TV? I saw her. Gosh, within the past year. Yes, she's never. She's always been associated with NBC Channel Five. Mm-hmm. So here's the great thing about Bobby Wygant that none of us will ever accomplish. Bobby Wygant was on television at Channel 5 the day the signal of television started here. Wow. In Texas. Really? And she, and she's been with the same same station for her entire life. And she's in her 90s. Oh and my she's goodness. just she's a gracious, funny funny. I have so many funny photos. I've probably seen a thousand movies with Bobby mm-hmm. and had dinner with her 500 times all over the world and done interviews with actors, you know. Bobby first, me second, me first, Bobby second. And just doing that and traveling with her, I have so much respect for her. Mm-hmm. And uh, but she's hilarious. She's I just bet. one of one of my you know dear human beings on the planet. Mm-hmm. But to work the same job, you know, she was she was interviewing the Beatles in sixty what, I think that's four when mm-hmm. they came through on their tour, and and one of them stood up. I want to say like Ringo Starr stood up at the press conference and made her famous. He stood up and looked at her and said. We watched you on the telly last night. <laughs> and it's Bobby. Wow. It's just, it's, the stories are endless. You know? She is wonderful. You are too. Every time we, uh, I've heard a review, I feel like I'm a friend in your place, you know, talking side by side. It, it, you, you talk in a way that's very conversational, and I, mm-hmm. I really like that you review that way. No, I, thank you. I was going to ask you, um, in regards to music and film, 
What type of relationship do you think that is? How important is that to the film music? Um, it's as important as any element in a film. You know, if you don't have a cinematographer, you don't have images. If you and you can do movies without music, and every once in a while they're done and they're appropriate. Mm -hmm. It's really rare, um, but uh, it, it's just, it, it's the, it's the thing that lights the bulb of everything for me. It's the I do this in my own daily life. I'll sit down and put music when I write on it because mm -hmm. it, I'm inspired by it. It might, it might not be music that you would use, but it's music that I use. And sometimes it's just random. Sometimes it's rock and sometimes it's classical. And sometimes it's orchestral, but many times it's just some music and it's a soundtrack to a film that's in the background. And I've always been around that since I was little. And, and music's always been a really, really big part of my life. So, and movies, monumental. It's 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 everything. Most of the time when we talk about a movie, and if it's an Oscar-winning film or an Oscar-contending film, we can also talk pretty quickly about the music score and the composer of that, mm -hmm. because that's it, it stands on equal ground with the cinematographer and the editor mm -hmm. and the screenplay and the actors. They're all, to me, on equal ground. And when they all do their job and make the film that they set out to make, whether we like it or not, um, that's quite an accomplishment. It's hard to get a movie made. It's hard, but it, it's spectacular, and they still make spectacular movies every year. You know, often I think music is, you know, certainly it can enhance the characters. Sometimes I think the music is its own character in yes. in a movie. Uh, and then it's amazing to me, I can think of a couple of examples. Um, in action scenes in movies, uh, for example, one of the movies we're going to be playing is Jaws, and mm -hmm. there's some there's a lot of action when the three men are on the right. boat moving around and all, and and they're after the shark. And I've I've seen that um, with the music, of course, the the way the movie should be, but I've seen that without the music at all. And if you watch mm -hmm. it without the music, it's it's almost ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> right, it doesn't make any sense. There's no tension. Really? I think so too, and really serious scenes sometimes look funny without music. Yes, mm -hmm. and they're, they're almost they're almost comical because plus we're already in tune with all that music score. When you say Jaws, we know exactly what you mean. Yes, sure. we right. know, we, and all that stuff. Those actors, those actors, and Jaws were so good, and you know that stuff on the boat. That stuff on the boat is that that music score is big. It's yeah. really big, well, and like it, a lot of John Williams stuff when when he gets into, but you know he he's all over the map on his scores. He's small and medium and large and big and then memorable, so memorable. Of course, uh, the say, the two note motive of the shark is really memorable. Right. But I'm I'm thinking of scenes also on the boat. There's a famous speech by Robert Shaw where he's talking about right. the USS Indianapolis, yep. and. He's such a great actor, and there's stories about him having to do that again. He did that's, that's a couple scene takes. where they show their scars, correct? Yes, yes, yes right. right, right. Uh, but then when all, he but... gets serious about telling the story of surviving this this uh, this terrible event, the eerie music that John Williams put behind that too. I mean, it just yeah. enhances. Of course, the speech alone. He's such a great actor. It, it's it yep. stands on its own, but. The support with the music, I think, is just mm -hmm. grandeur. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. And how great is John Williams to recognize moments like that? That you you don't want the moment. You, you know, it's like a set. You, if you're an actor and the set's bigger than you, and it distracts from what you're doing, that's kind of not the point. And music is the point to enhance that actor in that performance. Yes. And enhance what they're doing, not to distract. In, from in it. a way, it's it's like in sports. I think. Um, I almost don't want to talk about sports right now because of my <laughs> Dallas Cowboys, but I will mention oh my God. Um, a Hail great Mary. broadcaster. Uh, for example, if a play happens, a great commentator like the, the Pat Summerall, I'm mm -hmm. just saying, mm -hmm. he knew right. when to let things happen and go, and then he would speak a few words, and they meant a lot. I mean, that, and that would enhance what was happening. In some ways, I think music in a film does the same type of thing. Well, isn't it fair to say that... that also, because we're talking about Jaws and, and the, the two-note motive that sort of represents the tension, the music not only is the character, but it is also part of a character in the, in the movie. Like, there's, it represents the shark. Well, in that particular movie, of course, and Gary 
can talk about this better than me, but um, the shark was not working. And so th they they wanted to have the shark seen by the people, the movie goers, more often, but they couldn't. So what they did was have the music represent the shark. You mm -hmm. knew the shark was around because of the music, but right. they couldn't get the shark to work. The few moments they did, did they got some good footage from it. <laughs> yeah. And it made yeah, sense. The the, the very first shark, so they had three. They used three. You know, they're all called Bruce. And the very first shark uh, sank to the bottom of the ocean. And they had to pull it out and figure out, well, how are we going to get this movie made? But because there were delays on that movie and because the shark didn't work half the time, that helped them kind of get their act together and how they're actually going to do this instead of shooting it really fast and, and in some ways possibly stupidly. But they didn't. And also, it, the shark's fantastic, and they don't use it as much as you think. Mm -hmm. you, you don't see the shark as much as you think. You'll see them under the water and the different things, and it's and, you know, and, and one shark was meant to go on one side because the other side was all mechanics, so they could only shoot once the right side of one shark and the left side of another shark, and then they had a full one. But uh, I think he had his own theme song, and it's like a lot of characters in movies have their own theme and that like darth Bruce, vader Bruce, well uh, yeah Bruce right. had his own theme darth vader has right. his own mm -hmm. theme you know good guys have their own thing indiana jones has his own thing mm -hmm. well a lot of this yeah. can come from opera i'll, I'll bring my yes. world into this a sure. little bit because uh for example richard wagner in his operas would give themes to characters and, mm -hmm. and motifs it's called leitmotiv in, hmm. in german and that's that's similar to what john williams does for these epic movies that you're talking about as well. Mm -hmm. John Williams in my lifetime is the best. He's, he's, you can make a case for a lot of people and there's a lot of really good, you know, Hans Zimmer and Morricone and there's a, there's a million Bernard here. Um, there's, there's a million of um, Randy Newman who writes great music. Scores. Oh, sure. Right. Just wonderful music scores. Uh, Maurice Charest. I mm -hmm. mean, Lawrence Arabia is one of the great scores. Mm -hmm. John Barry, uh, and then Vangelis comes in with his little electronic music score. <laughs> with yeah. Chariots of and, Fire. And not only he beats, he, with Chariots of Fire, do you know the score that he beat that year? And I think that was, I want to say, uh, uh, forget the, the year of that movie, 81. 81, I think it was 81. Yeah, he beat, yeah. He, he beat uh, the first Indiana Jones song and oh. John Williams. Yeah. Did he really? Raiders of the Lost He did. Heart. Yeah. He did. Vangelis, that was the, probably the, one of the biggest upsets in movie history anyway. I remember when that happened, like, really? Chariots of Fire? And I, it was a really wonderful little film, but, but you know, Reds was out that year, and I think On Golden Pond. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that's the year that um, I think Henry Fonda and and the actress in it uh, both won Best Catherine Hepburn. Actor and Actress, yeah. Catherine Hepburn, and then, and then Warren Beatty won <clears throat> for directing Reds, and then all of a sudden this oh, little yeah. picture wins it. That's yeah, a good year, wasn't it? Yeah, wins it. Yeah, beats Indiana Jones for best music <laughs> score. So the, I'm, I'm I'm kind of I've always been shocked that John Williams hasn't won like ten or fifteen Oscars. He's only won five. Right with with the percentage of he's that he's been nominated it mm -hmm. is it is remarkable. Yeah. It's only been that, yeah. that many. Yeah, he doesn't yeah. need them. He's he's <laughs> he to me he's greatness with with those Oscars. He's so humble. He's such yes. a great human being. Jeez, I just, uh, every day we have him is a blessing. So let's talk a little bit about the, the theme for this performance, uh, A Night at the Movies, Good versus Evil. Well, I'll, I'll say this in context of, of a number of things, but I, I, I think, I, I, this is hard for me to articulate, but I, I can articulate, but I can do this. I, if I'm making movies, I would love to make movies about really nice people and really good people. And I would love to make Forrest Gump. Mm -hmm. I would love to make oh, Chariots of Fire is really about good people. It's mm -hmm. uplifting for sure. Yeah. Yes. Through hard, uh, through hardship too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Through hardship. Now, hardship is not necessarily an evil character. No. But but you know you have to have conflict in order for to move good people along mm -hmm. anyway. And and also it's true in life. You could be a wonderful person, but you're going to have conflict. But evil, when you start talking about evil, uh, I think it was the great uh, Roger Ebert said, um, you can judge the quality of a movie oftentimes by the quality of the villain. Mm -hmm. um, my daughter, when she, my daughter who's a painter, and she's in her mid-30s now, and, uh, but she got caught sneaking into her, her first R-rated movie 
we were really conservative with with my both my daughters because her dad was a film critic and we talked about movies constantly and saw movies and constantly and they were very astute as as young women but at the age of 13 she went out with her friends and they were going to a movie and it was sold out they couldn't get in so they snuck into <laughs> uh, a war a war movie with josh hartman black hawk down oh, oh yeah. yeah and that's a violent tough film mm-hmm. and i was divorced at the time and my ex-wife called me and said mr movie guy you need to talk to your daughter she snuck into an r-rated movie and she knows it's wrong so what are you going to do movie guy and i spent 15 minutes on the phone talking about the quality of the film <laughs> did you change your mind did you... <laughs> well, she said the best she said the best well she got grounded by her mom no for two weeks. and uh and i said man if you're good and i said if you're going to sneak into a movie don't sneak into Porky's. That's sneak, right. into, <laughs> sneak into Black Hawk Down. This you is got a, a point. Film. And, and so the quote from her that has stuck with me my whole life, and I'll use it in the program, is that she said to me once, as we talked about good people and bad people and good and evil and all this stuff that's in film and stuff that scares us and stuff that thrills us, she goes, I'm just going to be honest, Dad. The bad guys are more interesting. And that, that's always stuck with me. And it's they can be tough and they can be evil and they can mm-hmm. be, you know, Hannibal Lecter. They can be Darth Vader. And if they're done right and they're played right and it's scored right, um, they're interesting and they're fascinating. Absolutely. And most of us are multi, we have multifacets. We're multifaceted in our, in our badness or our evilness mm-hmm. as well as our goodness. And sometimes we kind of cross over to both in real life. Do you think we allow ourselves to enjoy that because we, we, it, it isn't real life. We know we're going into a, a movie, a, a theater and letting ourselves yeah. go that way. And it's, especially if it's fiction and when it's not based on a real character, you know, there's some, there's some movies that I, I have so much trouble watching because I know they're true and mm-hmm. they're honest mm-hmm. in cold blood is tough. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Um, that's tough stuff, but it's great. It's mm-hmm. a great movie. As, yeah. I think, I think we're, I think we're attracted to the dark side if we know we're in a safe place. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you're at the Eisman with the Richardson symphony and the greatness of Clay Couturio, uh, you, you know that you're in a safe place mm-hmm. and you know, that's going to end, but the thrill for a three to four to five minutes of that, Listening to that psycho string music. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, We go there because we want to go there and we are okay. We Uh are okay. Let's just know that we're all okay. I'm, I'm, I'm of the persuasion that you teach discernment to each other or to children or to yourself, that you don't hide from all of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And literature and movies and music help you do that. It bridges that gap so that I can understand. Well, it's a, almost a biblical concept. The more you know about the dark side, the more you appreciate the light. Absolutely. Well, and I think, yeah. you know, at the risk of sort of sounding metaphysical, you know, you, yeah. you, you can't have the light without the shadow. Yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. It's true. Yeah. And, it, it, you know, there's just so many weird, angry, weird people walking around the planet. There's all this awful stuff that goes on all the time. But, you know, I, I think in the, the grand scheme of literature and music and movies, the bad guys are often more interesting, not all the time to me, but often. Well, and, yeah. and things aren't always what they seem. I mean, you know, as as the movie Psycho starts, as we're first introduced to Norman Bates, um, I mean, he just seems like a, a quirky, uncomfortable young man. You know, you don't um, – it's such a fascinating character study. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it just – it's, it's brilliantly written and, and acted. I mean, Anthony Perkins, my gosh, what a performance. I know, and and he was he's so thin, mm-hmm. and he's so odd, and he's so uh, quirky. Mm-hmm. And he was that way, and he was that way in all of his movies. And that he played the, a basketball player in that old movie. Oh, and he was, tall he was story. Just, yeah, tall story. Mm-hmm. And he was just so awkward. Mm-hmm. And he couldn't play basketball at all, but he was an actor in a movie. <laughs> but you know the the weird thing about Psycho is that was based on a book, and the book was based on a series of two murders that were true and it's pretty close to the book where where these guys uh had a mother and they dressed up as them and the mother's cadaver was in another room 
wow. and they, they could they couldn't lose all that. Oh and so, gosh. and th- this is a great story, so, and I don't want to bore you with this, but Alfred Hitchcock found this story in this book that nobody really read, and he fell in love with it, but it was too repulsive for the studios. They didn't want to make it. This is what, 1960 or 61. Right. Yeah. And so he went and bought the rights with his own money for $9,500. And then he spent his own money and bought every copy of that book on every shelf in America. And I don't think there are very many of them. But he bought up all the books so that when he made the movie, nobody would know the story and it would shock him. Oh, wow. It's just fascinating. It's just absolutely fascinating. And, yeah. And, you know, nobody wanted to pay for that movie or make it. Paramount didn't want to do it. They did, but they, they didn't want to spend any money on it. That film was made for $800,000. Can you believe it? That's unbelievable. And it made somewhere like $160 million or something like that. Eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy. Well, what I also like about our program overall, you know, good versus evil, but sometimes it's kind of murky. It's kind of hard to tell right. when some of these movies is that good or evil. We, mm-hmm. It's it's almost thought-provoking on some of these. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think so, too. Uh, you know, Superman's interesting. You have mm-hmm. bad guys in that. You mm-hmm. know, the, the Pink Panther's good guys. I think uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula and Francis Coppola directed that one. It's got some really creepy stuff and some oh, really yeah. good mm-hmm. stuff in it. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia is ambiguous to me. Mm-hmm. It so is. So Lawrence of Arabia, to me, was the film that changed my life as a 10-year-old. I sat through Lawrence of Arabia four nights in a row by myself as a 10-year-old in Portland, Oregon. Wow. And I, and that should tell you a lot about bad parenting. <laughs> <laughs> that my parents would let me go as a 10-year-old, but I was a movie freak as a kid, and they, they, they were not. Mm-hmm. I saw one film with my father his entire lifetime. Oh I dragged him goodness. to see John Wayne in the Alamo. And uh, I, it was probably my third time to see it. I'm sure I talked through the whole thing. And it was we walked to the car. I'll never forget this. Does, does that ambiguity fall in the category of the anti-hero? Yeah. In, in some ways, I think it does. Because we, want, we often want all our lines to be drawn evenly, and they're not. They're just not. And human beings are not evenly drawn lines either. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think, you know, I never could, as a child, understand whether Lawrence of Arabia was a good guy or a bad guy. He's definitely and, both. Just because of his personality, both. of who he mm-hmm. was, you think? Yeah. 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 And, I, you know, you have to really study that. Most of that's steeped in a lot of history in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And, and so in all those different groups of people and powers that had and they're all on horseback and they all have swords and they'll take your head off in a nanosecond mm-hmm. and we're just not we're just not quite sure we don't know who should win this because we live in america and we think it's a totally different thing mm-hmm. which blends into that whole thing that we you know as americans often want to go out and change the world by going into another culture and making it like ours and it shouldn't be mm-hmm. well i have seen yeah. lawrence of arabia on the big screen and i can say if there is ever a movie that you you really need to see in the theater on a large, large screen, it is Lawrence of Arabia. Absolutely. It, it is just massive in scale just to see from one end of the theater to the other. Mm-hmm. It's just so magnificent for a year. You know, that's the same year. That's 1962. That's the same year as To Kill a Mockingbird, two of the greatest oh, no. movies ever made. And I remember as a 10-year-old, you know, the Academy Awards are coming up, and I'm like, oh, no, who's going to win? Well, <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia wins Best Picture, but Gregory Peck wins Best Actor. Mm-hmm. Also one of the greatest nice guy, virtuous characters in the history of movies. Mm-hmm. And, and, but yet you have Lawrence of Arabia, and they both, both films won. But Lawrence of Arabia, that music score to that always just put me over the edge. Oh, yeah. It changed, it changed, you know, instead of stepping on my foot and the lid opens and I treated movies like garbage, like I was a garbage can, <laughs> I started thinking about what I was watching and it was all because of Lawrence of Arabia and then To Kill a Mockingbird in the same year. Mm-hmm. I started interacting with movies on a different, just a completely different level mm-hmm. as a child, you know. Yeah, the, the score is just magnificent, just overwhelming, just like the, the vastness of the, of the uh, desert, mm-hmm. these overwhelmingly large-scale waves of sound of music that comes through it's, it's... and the dust storms it all works together so beautifully and the train mm-hmm. he loved you know he loved using the train oh, that's I, right I, yeah i i it's it so fast that's a film that inspired steven spielberg in the early days 
Wow. You know, he, he, you know, the greatest show on earth was one of them, but he'll, I've had endless discussions with Steven Spielberg about Lawrence of Arabia because that's the film that changed me. And it's really, in many ways, the film that changed him. Mm-hmm. And that's why he, you know, the first, one of the first films he ever did was on a train with Goldie Hawn. And he uses trains into the movies a lot. But yeah, they took a year to shoot Lawrence of Arabia. You couldn't film for a year now. That would be a billion dollar budget. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And also, uh, uh, Peter O'Toole is such an alcoholic that they had a full-time assistant to keep him sober during filming. And that was his first big film. Well, Spielberg, Spielberg could have used that for Robert Shaw, too, I think. Yeah. He could have used that for Robert Shaw. <laughs> the stories are endless. I know. Well, just like... Well, the, oh, go ahead, Gary. Sorry. Well, the other thing, is the, the director of Lawrence Arabia... Um, What's his name? Uh, it's, I'm having a brain freeze here. But the director of Lawrence of Arabia was uh, who also did Dr. Shivago and Bridge on the River Kwai and Great Expectations. Just a magnificent director, six foot four inch tall British handsome man. It's believed, David Lean. David Lean, mm-hmm. the great David Lean, believed that if you, this is crazy, if you took on a mistress while you made a movie, you made better art. So he had a full time assistant to keep his mistress away from his wife. Oh. Why they filmed Lawrence of Arabia for a year. And of course, how'd that work out for him? He never stayed. He, none of that ever yeah. worked out. He never, he could never stay married. And mm-hmm. it's just a mess. <laughs> but just, well, it's, it's just nutty stuff. You know, music can be so vast and large scale for the desert. It can also be in its own way the same for the American West, like in Dances with Wolves, the way that like music Dances, portrays. John Barry's score in yes. that is just. You know, that was, that was, that's one of the more memorable scores. And when Kevin Costner took that film on, because that's a three-hour and five-minute film, it's a big piece. But those themes, those themes are instantly recognizable. Yes, I get when, chills when thinking hear, about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just... yeah. yeah. Just, and then you have the comedy of Pink Panther, mm-hmm. like Henry Mancini's, mm-hmm. which was really for, for animation, because they started off the Pink Panther movies with animation. But and played that thing. They out. were before the films, weren't they? Yeah. That's, yes. That's yeah. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, in the first Pink Panther movie, the opening credits boom, 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 was animated. Right. And then that's it, right. And then it go into live action. Yeah. Yeah. Just those those big things. They're just they're amazing. You know, we were talking about it can be in between good and evil sometimes. Another example I think is Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. With right. Jack Sparrow. Sure. Is he a good guy or a bad yeah, guy? Yeah, right. what is he? Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't want you to know what he is. Right. No. He's kind of like a modern day Robin Hood, sort of <laughs> that same concept. It's like, well, he's kind of he good. He will tell you that. <laughs> Johnny Depp will tell you that in person. Mm-hmm. So he, he, and also he's, he's very, uh, he's very ambiguous just as a guy. Mm-hmm. He's kind of, he's kind of funny. In the, yes. in the weird approach that he does, he has he gets real flamboyant in some of the stuff that he does, but he he just doesn't want to be read as one thing. And that character, which I thought the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie was so good, just really interesting. The second one was pretty good, and then they start getting really bad. Yeah, as a lot as a lot of sequels do when they get down yes. to you know the Matrix Four. It's just a ter- terrible movie, but it's. <laughs> It's funny how that all that stuff works. So I, I'm in I'm in New York and I'm interviewing Johnny Depp for I, one of his not not Pirates of the Caribbean but another film. And at the time, he was best friends with uh, a, a a guy from Dallas who had a band called Gibby Haynes. Oh yes. And Gibby Haynes has a band called the Butthole Surfers. That's right. Right. So I know just saying that just rolls off the tongue funny, doesn't it? <laughs> so he has. So Gibby Haynes would hang out with uh, with uh, Johnny Depp. They became like really close friends, and they got to know Gibby Haynes's dad, which is Jerry Haynes, Mr. Pepperman. That's right. Who was oh, on Channel really? for years. Yes. A dear, dear friend, late friend of mine. And I would go into Pep's office all the time, and he'd be sitting there with Vern with all the puppets from Miss Pepperman Joe, and he'd be walking around Channel Eight with his pinstripes on and his cane. And eventually, when Johnny Depp did uh, the Willy Wonka film, which was not great, mm-hmm. um, he, he patterned a lot of that after Mr. Pepperman and what he knew about him and carrying a king around and doing stuff. But I'm sitting there in this interview with Johnny Depp. I think it's my first time to meet him. I'm sitting in a hotel suite in New York, and we're looking at each other, and I just stop him. The cameras are rolling, but I just stop and look at him. I say, uh, or he stops me, and he looks at me, and he goes, uh, do you know Mr. Pepperman? 
And I thought, just hearing Johnny Depp say Mr. Peppermint, which was a very <laughs> local thing for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And I said, yeah, he's right down the hall. He said, will you tell Mr. Peppermint how are you? And then he tells me a story about Gibby and getting to know Gibby and all this stuff. And I thought, so I took that on tape and I took it back to the station and I roll an ongoing loop for like 10 minutes of, do you know Mr. Peppermint? Do you know Mr. Peppermint of Johnny Depp? And I took it into Pep's office and I showed it to Jerry and gave it to him. I think it was a VHS tape back then. I was just Johnny Depp and somebody famous saying, do you know Mr. Peppermint? <laughs> and That's it was the coolest so cool. thing. It was the coolest thing. So I grew up watching Mr. P, and uh, I do a great impersonation of his puppet, Muffin. So when you're in town for the concert, I can do my Muffin impersonation for you. That's a little bit extra for our listeners. Just, you know. Yeah. If you're listening and come to the concert, track Lori down. Track Lori down. She'll do Muffin. It's not podcast worthy. (laughs) That's hilarious. Yeah. That's hilarious. So we'll have to have, I'll have to have Kermit the Frog ask Muffin a question. (laughs) You got it. That'll be fun. Okay. Hey, next up here, it's Muffin, okay? (laughs) I know. So Gary, I have, I have to ask you, you know, movie related, a little bit off topic. Um, Do you have a favorite movie from 2023? What, what movie blew you away? going to shock you um i i like well i thought oppenheimer was just great sure i just thought it was a really fine film and i just one of those films i admire do do i get moved by it all the time no but i'm constantly going man mm-hmm. um robert downey jr is really good in it Celia oh Murphy my gosh, really good yes in it. emily blunt's really good in it. this is smart mm-hmm. i love christopher nolan's films mm-hmm. i thought the holdovers was a really sweet little nice surprise with paul giamatti and it's a really cool little film that normally wouldn't but you know we started getting into films like coda and some other things that have been surprising us the last few years that that beat out all these big films by something kind of smaller and quiet mm-hmm. but it's also the guy that directed sideways so the holdovers has some good stuff sure i thought barbie was fantastic absolutely <laughs> i'm not i'm, I'm did, did that you, surprise man. you bart yes it surprised me i thought in the early initial stages of making Barbie, I was reading stuff like it's going to be real R-rated. Real, and I thought, oh, God. And then I went and I thought, this is an empowerment movie. Mm-hmm. This is a female empowerment movie. And when when he gets up and sings I'm Ken, I about fell off the floor. Yeah. That's like, that's like one of the craziest musical numbers ever mm-hmm. in, in the movie. And I think he's just great and daring for doing it. But I think Greta Gerwig... And the actress can do no wrong. I oh, think they're yeah. just smart. Greta is smart brilliant. As a mm-hmm. uh, just brilliant. And mm-hmm. I and, and a good human being. And, I, yeah. and just writes really well. But her movies pretty much knock me out. The movie that I can't get out of my head is Poor Things. And Poor Things is shocking. It's just, it's hard R. It's really difficult. But the premise is so brilliant and original. And it's based, I don't know if you've seen it or not. But not it's based yet. on, it's a female uh, uh, a female Frankenstein movie. Mm-hmm. It's basically this doctor, this scientist, like Frankenstein, and it's played by Willem Dafoe. He's got scars because he's been experimenting on his own face, and he he puts the the brain of a baby in a dead woman, and so and it comes to life, but it has the brain of a baby, wow. and it grows really fast. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning of the movie, the baby has no filter it's like kids have no filter they'll look at you and say you're fat mm-hmm. or you're you're mm-hmm. not funny or why are you eating that and this has no it's a woman with no filter and she doesn't care and she starts severing all kinds of things like her own sexuality and all, all kinds of things around her she hears a baby crying in a restaurant and says what well, i'm going to go over and kill that baby and take care of that and it's funny, it's a dark comedy, mm-hmm. but at the end of the movie, she goes from being a, kind of a babbling idiot in the beginning to reading high literature and articulate and erudite. And it's a fascinating study that has just a lot of, a lot of really rough stuff in it, but it's kind of beautiful in its weird, odd, horrific way. I'm fascinated by poor thing. I think she wins the Oscar, actually. Have you had an opportunity to uh, see Bradley Cooper's movie, Maestro? So, I, I, that's what I'm getting to. Mm-hmm. That <laughs> that's what I thought. I love that film so much. I was also kind of troubled by it. Mm-hmm. 
but I love the music in it so much. I'm a Leonard Bernstein fanatic. One of my favorite things I've ever seen in my life on television, I'm a huge fan of the Kennedy Center Honors because it's one of the only honorable TV shows that really celebrates art in really a great way without yes. cluttering it all up with all kinds of chaos. Is the year Leonard Bernstein was awarded and his daughter stood on stage and sang a song called Thank You. Mm-hmm for being my father and he just bawls like a baby and I was not so this is really funny I was not aware of his sexuality mm-hmm. all these years and my wife turns to me after we watched the movie and said you didn't know that and I said no <laughs> I said I didn't know anything about mm-hmm. that how could I be that naive but it's and I it was fascinated the portrayal of it but there was a real sense of sadness to the movie too and celebration mm-hmm. it was both for me I think he's a genius filmmaker and a great actor. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure this is the best film he's ever made, but it's one of them. I, I thought Star is Born was great. And what he does with actresses in this film, I think she is great in the film. Carrie Mulligan is a great actress. But that whole sequence where he conducts, so here's my connection to that film, is the uh, dialect coach on Maestro is Tim Monick. And Tim is one of my dear friends. And when I made movies for five years, the first movie I was a part of to help get made was Words and Pictures with Clive Owen and Juliet Binoche and Amy Brenneman. And our dialect coach was Tim Monarch. Oh, wow. And so we email all the time. And so a year ago, I'm emailing, Tim, what are you doing? What are you working on? Oh, I'm in London and I'm working with Bradley Cooper on a Bernstein film and I about fell off the <laughs> floor. I can't wait to see this. Mm-hmm. And so, and he's, he's been on a lot of talk shows talking about Tim Monick, helping him learn that dialect and how to do that and working with the composers and conductors to how do you, how do you, how do you conduct when you've never conducted? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I, that sequence in the cathedral, I, I uh, put that on an endless soup in my life. And that's a famous, that's a, that was a real event. Of course, all, yep. everything in that movie was based on real events and that was a, with the London Symphony Orchestra, and that he was conducting Bradley Cooper as Bernstein was conducting really? the London Symphony in yeah. this film, oh, wow. and it was London Symphony back in the day with Bernstein, okay. and it, it is remarkable. I know a lot of professional musicians have two feelings about this film. They 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 really do enjoy it, and it does represent a lot of what Bernstein was. Uh, they were disappointed as musicians that it didn't discuss the great more of the greatness specifically about him and his relationship with uh, the music itself, and uh, it was more a personal story between he and his his wife, right. and and I think that was between Bradley Cooper and Bernstein's children. This is this is the story that he went to them, and this is what they all came up with was as to what they wanted to tell. So for a lot of the musicians that have said they have some disappointment in it, I tell them, well, Bernstein was probably the most, one of the most, if not the most, filmed uh, conductors of all time. Mm-hmm. Of all if, time. If, if what yeah. they want to see, it's, it's already there in real life. You can see him conduct and, and talk about music with students and other musicians. It's all really there. They just wanted that portrayal. They want that feeling that the, and respect that they have of Bernstein through that shown in the film. And I think if you are a non-musician, it, it is, but it's, it's just at a different level than what professional musicians are, are looking for sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think so too. And I, I will say this, and this is my answer to that as well, because I, I constantly watch movies and then I think to myself, well, I wouldn't do that. Or I would do this differently. Why didn't they do that? Why didn't, mm-hmm. And I had to stop that. I had to just stop yes. because movies are what they are, not what you want them to be. And you don't know until you go in and watch, but we go in with all these preconceived ideas that Barbie is going to be this, mm-hmm. right? Or, or, or a Western is going to be this because we have a million cliches in our head and we have things that we like, we want it to be, but they are what they are. And they are what that director and that writer and that cast decided to do. And you can take it or leave it, but, or, or, like I always say to people, go make your own movie. Go do it. Gary, it's the same thing in music. Every musician yeah. that goes to a concert or conduct, no conductor likes another conductor's performance. No. <laughs> but but you have to get over, you have to get over it because right. it's, like you said, Gary, it's not yours. You have to step aside, listen to it for what it is, 
and and you're not going to agree with everything that interpretation right. interpretation and, and things. But you're right. You either back off, enjoy what you can out of it, or go do your own performance. Right. Mm-hmm. Make your own art. Well, there are yeah. in in movies and in film, there are so many moving pieces and so many things that are beyond your control. You know, the weather. You know, we talk about it all the time. All the all the um, exciting things that can happen during a concert, you know, and how important it is to have the interaction of the audience, you know, from the applause to a cough to, um, you know, sometimes something accidental that happens on stage or in the audience, you know, that's part of the experience. It is part of the experience. And it's and sometimes in each time it's unique. make it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. It's true. It happens in movies all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, the light wasn't right, but we got a flare off here and wow. That's mm-hmm. right. Well, I mean, that's what we talk about on the podcast all the time, that that the experience of a live performance, you know, my experience at one performance is going to be very different than, you know, the next performance. But that's that's what makes it so great. Mm-hmm. You know, with a baton, can you, this question that I have, because I learned a lot watching Maestro and 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 just loving classical music, but can you be too big with a baton or can you be too small with a baton? <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. The answer is yes. The, the baton is really an extension of your arm. The reason the conductor holds the baton is because the orchestra, the symphony orchestra, is large on stage. It, it's, it's, so it's really for clarity. If you imagine the tip of the baton, and that's really what shows the beat, or in the music world, we call it ictus. That's the precise instance of the beat point that's showing where the beat lies in space. It's to provide clarity. Of, it's all about perception in space. If everyone can have this, perceive where that beat is, then they can play together. That's from a technical aspect. Now, the conductor uses the baton through gesture to show emotion through music, too. And it's, it's hard to describe what that is with, right. with words. That's mm-hmm. why you use it with motion. Um, but yes, there are times where it can be too big and it, it messes musicians up or if it's, it, you can be as small as you can be and still be clear, but sometimes it's so small, like it's hard to play together in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, I always like to look at it from this perspective and I tell all the conducting students this too, put yourself in the seat of one of the musicians in the orchestra. You're sitting there playing cello or flute or whatever it is. You're looking at the conductor. What do you need from that person? What do you need to see from the conductor so we can do our job well? What mm-hmm. what equips us to do our best? Mm-hmm. I don't well, know if that answers so, your question or not, Gary. But well, that's, so some members of an orchestra would need a lot and some would not need very much. Well, and it's they'll a, get to the same thing, correct? That's correct. And actually, if you ask any different section of the orchestra, what do you need from the conductor? They're going to say different things. The woodwinds expect different things from the strings, mm-hmm. and they, ah. from, so you have to you have to fulfill needs for a whole variety of people who, who want different things from you. So that that is a complicated business. Yeah. Well, and yeah. I've also watched because I I love watching the rehearsals, and you're so expressive with your facial expressions, and you communicate so much through your eyes, your smiles. You know. All of your facial expressions are very important well, to the orchestra. And, and truthfully, conducting is more through the eyes mm-hmm. and, and uh, uh, looks between people. When you're talking to someone and looking at them, mm-hmm. that, that communication is even more important than the baton itself. Mm-hmm. No, don't tell the musicians that. That's, <laughs> that. They need to follow the baton. But it also explains why you spend months studying each score, because in preparation for each concert, you have to be prepared so that you're interacting with the musicians rather than reading the score, because you already know the score and you're just referring well, to it. And you're directing like a director would for uh, actors in a, in a film. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying to allow the soloist or whoever has the melody or or whatever in the orchestra to express themselves in their own way with their personality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there's many things going on. It's what the composer wrote. So that's the music in print itself. Music in print is not the end result. The end result is what you hear. So there's many things going on in music. It's what the composer wrote. 
then the intention of the conductor and with with the orchestra musician to come up with and interpret what the composer wrote mm-hmm. to produce the sound that you hear and that result. Now, me as a, uh, a conductor, it's like a director. I want the personality of the player. That's what that's the human element, the performer, right. the actor, the musician. Their personality comes through from what's written on the page. If, if I can enhance that as the conductor or director, then I've done my job. Mm-hmm. Wow. Uh, now, how, how that goes about, now, just like there can be, ar- ar- I don't want to say arguments, but let's say disagreements between actors and, and directors. Have you ever heard about that, Gary? I don't know. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That can yes. happen on any performance level. That can happen between head coach of a football team and the quarterback. Sure. It can happen yeah. between the conductor and the concertmaster, whoever, you know. But if everybody's intention is is in the right place, I think sometimes you feed off that. I mean, if you agreed on every everything always, it may it may not sound as exciting. To be well, honest be, with you, it would have it would lack personality. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So it's your job to communicate your interpretation to the musicians because likely many of the pieces, not all, but many of the pieces our orchestra performs are pieces that they have played at other points in their lives with other orchestras. And and they're highly specialized, smart people, mm-hmm. very smart, and they know what they're yes. talking about, sure. what they're doing. So you you better know what you're doing too, and right. you bear, better be convincing. They do understand there's more than one way to act this scene or sure. more than one way to perform this, this work. But it's how you go about... Um, um, persuading them, right? Mm-hmm. And there's one way of, of saying it. So Tar must have been a really challenging film for you. <laughs> that actually, that's one I have not seen. Often, I don't see a lot of music movies till till way later. Maestro yeah. was an exception. It took me years to see Whiplash, or yeah. or Mr. Holland's Opus. Many years later, but I will get to Tar. I promise. I went to high school where they've made Mr. Holland's Opus. That's my high school. That's wow. Grant High School in Portland, Oregon. I saw my locker in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's I'm awesome. Fly, That's I, fly to New, I fly to New York and I'm sitting and I'm seeing a movie. I, I can't remember. And I go into this little screening room in Manhattan and I see Mr. Holland's Opus. And then the next morning I'm sitting in a chair with Richard Dreyfuss. Wow. wow. And I looked at him and I said to him, I saw my locker in your movie. And we had this amazing amazing discussion about life and music teaching and all those things tars tar stuff I'd, be, I'd love to have a conversation with you someday about tar i tell you what I'll, I'll try to yeah. watch it before we get together and, okay. and maybe we'll have that conversation at the at the reception okay and if you if you don't get there that's okay we'll do it but i i it's challenging it's a very challenging sure film. sure yeah and what a great way to kind of wrap up our conversation this afternoon absolutely yes. What a good conversation. Oh, it was great. Thank you so much, Gary. This was so much fun. This is a playground I want to be in. (laughs) I know the musicians look forward to working with you and seeing you very soon, and we're going to have a wonderful concert. Gary, thank you so much for spending time with us today. So Music and movies. Let's do this. Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll see you soon. We'll see you soon. We'd like to thank our podcast sponsors, Humanities of Texas, The Ray Charitable Trust, and Frost Bank. I want to remind everyone that tickets are available at the Eisman Center Ticket Office and on their website at eismancenter.com. Maestro, thank you. It's always great to chat with you. And thank you, our listeners, for tuning in to Portraits and Music with Maestro Clay Catorio. I'm your producer and co-host, Ross Sievertson. Remember, if you haven't done so already, hit that subscribe button so you can get new episodes downloaded to you automatically. Reviews and ratings are always appreciated, and it helps us to provide you with more great inside conversations from the Richardson Symphony Orchestra. Until next time. <laughs>